Our Father, we come to you tonight, and we want to say, great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, and thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all of nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Lord, most of us have never heard of Thomas Chisholm but he's the man who wrote those lyrics. He's a man that is no longer on the face of the earth, but he penned those words because he knew you from the scriptures, and he also knew you by personal experience. We don't know much about him, but we know that he was a man who was committed to you and he was a man that was saturated in your word. And even though he is gone, he's promoted, he's in your presence, those lyrics live on, those lyrics that are saturated with your truth. We thank you for truth in, in, in these days days of great turmoil, in these days of great upheaval, in these days of great confusion, we thank you that our lives are built not on the sand, but on the rock. And so many folks, Lord, have built on the wrong foundation. And as the storm has come and as the storm continues to intensify, they're, uh, they're not only fearful, but they're in trouble. But because of the work you've done in our lives, because you sought us out, we have built, as Jesus said, on the rock. So the storm may come and the storm may blow and it may get more intense but we're going to be fine. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. 
and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. We don't trust anybody other than you. We wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So thank you, Father, for a firm foundation under us tonight. Thank you for your word. We continually need your word. It's manna. We, we keep opening your book because we can't live without your book. Man shall not live by bread alone. If we're just eating bread, we're not going to make it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we open our Bibles again tonight. Give each guy what he needs. I often ask that, Lord, and I often pray that, but it's just, a, it's just the prayer we need to pray. And oftentimes, Lord, we don't even know what we need. But tonight, encourage us. Remind us, Lord, of what's true. Help us to plant our feet more securely on you, on the solid rock. Steady us. Calm us. Settle us down. Increase our hope because we've got hope because we've got you. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his that he may strongly support them. Thank you for that support. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me tonight to 2 Timothy, and we are going to kick off a new study tonight. 2 Timothy, of all of the epistles that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy has, has a special place. Uh, all of the epistles are special. All of them are written for a specific purpose to a specific situation. But the interesting thing about 2 Timothy is that it is the last epistle that Paul wrote. Uh, if you will, it's uh, Paul's last will and testament. It is, um, if I were to title this, in fact, I'm going to title it because I'm going to title the series, what I've come up with for this study that will take us through the spring uh, is Last Words from a Faithful Man. I, I think there is great wisdom here that particularly speaks to us in the time and the season in which we find ourselves living. Paul's story is a unique story. And he had a remarkable life and he had a remarkable encounter with God that changed him forever. He is now getting ready to pass off the scene. In fact, if you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, it's very clear in his mind that he's in the last chapter of his life. He doesn't know exactly when it's going to come to an end, but it's imminent. Because he says in this letter to Timothy, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's getting ready to die. 
It's very clear to him his time on the earth is just about over. And he goes on and says in verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. He doesn't say I am fighting the good fight, although he is until his last breath. But it's as though the end is right there. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. He's still got a few yards to go. But he's speaking as though it's, it's over because it's about to be over. I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, and we might add in here, in the very near future, there is a crown laid up for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So it's very, very clear to Paul that it's all coming to a close. Um, The time of his departure is near. Sometimes men have a sense. They have a sense when the end is imminent. Very clearly, this is what was in Paul's heart. I was uh, talking with my son, Josh, my youngest boy. He's 24. And we were talking this week, and he loves literature, and he loves the classics, and he loves Latin and all this. And we were talking, he goes, he said, Dad, have you ever read Cicero, his treatise on old age? And I said, no, why would I read that? <laughs> he said, oh, you know, Dad. He said, it's really good. He's got some great stuff in there. I said, really? He said, He's, you can even Google it, Cicero. Just, just Google Cicero uh, on old age quotes. And I said, okay. So I did. And, and there was some great stuff in there. Cicero was a Roman philosopher, lived about 150 years before Paul was on the scene. Uh, Roman philosopher, uh, Cicero was a, was a great orator, great orator who actually had content. <laughs> what? <laughs> he was an orator who had substance and he had content. That's why 2,000 years later we're Googling, I'm Googling Cicero as to what he said about old age. He wasn't a believer, didn't know the Lord. But he had some great wisdom. Uh, Cicero said, old age, the crown of life, our play's last act. Uh, You got a first act, you got intermission. You got a second act, you got intermission. You got a third act. Old age is the third act. It's the last act in the play, in the theater of life, and Paul knows that he's there. Um, you know, isn't it interesting when we're young? You remember back when you were in your 20s? I, do we have any guys in here tonight? And if we do, we're glad you're in your 20s. Good to have you guys. That's great. Oh, there's some guys here in their 20s. Yeah. Enjoy that. You know, George Bernard Shaw once said that youth is such a wonderful thing, it's a shame to waste it on young people. (laughs) I never thought ever about dying until I hit 40. It it was a milestone for me. It it really never crossed my mind, probably didn't cross yours much, because when you're in 20s and 30s, for some reason, you think you're just kind of immortal. I mean, you know one day it's going to come, but I mean, it's a long, long 
way away. But then I hit 40. And what was interesting, because the realization that basically half my life was over, I started thinking about the fact that half my life was over. That's kind of a scary thought. It's, it's a very sobering thought. It's the way life works. Moses said in Psalm 90, as for the days of our lives, they contain 70 or due to strength 80 years, but their pride is but labor and sorrow. Soon it is gone. We fly away. So Paul's writing this letter from Rome. Oh, and guess what? He's in prison. Paul just had a way of finding himself in prison. Uh, really interesting. If you ever get a chance to go to Rome, um, I've been to Rome once. I wasn't all that pumped up about going, but we were going to Israel, and they had this, you know, this deal you could add on and go to Rome. So we went to Rome. And I'm really glad I went, because that's quite an amazing city. The, the thing that struck me about Rome, and if you've been there, you notice this, is the, is the way they build their buildings in Rome. It's not how we do it over here. Of course, they have a much longer history. In Rome... You, you can see a very modern office building, but the foundation of the building, uh, you've got five, six, seven layers of previous buildings that may go back to 100 or 200 years before the time of Christ. They, they don't knock stuff down and discard it. They don't bring in bulldozers and clean it up before. They just build. If something's still solid, if it's still there, they just, great. There's our foundation. They just add on to it. And you can see the layers. Like you can see the layers in the Grand Canyon. It's very unique. It's very... I, I've not seen it anywhere else how they do that. But you're going by and you see this modern building. And you see the layers. And if you talk to somebody, they could tell you, oh yeah, that's from the 5th century. And that's, oh yeah, 3rd century. And remarkable. You can go to a prison um, in Rome. Marmertine Prison. You can visit it, the dungeon. This is where Paul was being held. Peter was also being held there. Uh, Paul was about to be beheaded because that's how they executed Roman citizens. Peter was going to be executed upside down. One of the early church historians tells us that they were martyred on the same day. Paul beheaded, Peter upside down at his own request because he didn't feel that he was worthy to be crucified in the same way as our Lord was. Uh, before Paul departs, he writes this letter, last words, to his young uh, protege, Timothy. Because there are some things that he needs to convey. There, there are some things he needs to say. My grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, died at 101. Uh, Nana was self-sufficient until she was 97. Lived on the central California coast out by San Luis Obispo. And at the age of 97, she'd go to, there's a little coast town, a little beach town called Avila. And they do sports fishing out of Avila. At 97, Nana would go down, wait for the, uh, the fishing boat to come in when it was albacore season. 
And she'd get half an albacore and go home and can it at 97. Uh, There's a lot of agriculture in that area. She'd drive into the strawberry field. She knew all the guys. And they'd give her a deal on strawberries. Or she was doing broccoli or artichokes. 97 years old. Um, And then she fell, broke a hip, and anyway, died four years later. On her last visit to Texas, Mary had our kids write out a bunch of questions to ask Nana, and we videotaped it. Because she had been born, let me see if I can get this right. Was she born in 1890? uh, Let me get this straight. Uh, I think she was born in 1898. So the kids just fired questions, and we got it on video. What was it like back then? I mean, she was born in the horse and buggy time. And all the stuff she saw in that hundred years. So we've got some last words for her that are, from her that are very, very significant. Um, Paul is writing to Timothy in a time of, of absolute political anarchy and chaos. Um, the guy who is in charge of Rome is um, Nero. Nobody knew what Nero was, including Nero. The guy was basically out of his mind. The guy was basically insane. Uh, he was such a narcissistic and self-motivated um, leader that there was a point where he was getting intense criticism so he decided to turn that on a group of people called Christians. And Christians became public enemy number one. And about AD 64, Nero started a persecution that was almost beyond belief. He would take Christians, some of them, they would take wild, fresh, wild animal skins. And they would sew these men, women, and children in these fresh animal skins and leave them on the outskirts of town near the dump so that the wild dogs would eat them alive. Uh, The highway leading into Rome, he got the idea of taking Christians. He um, He had some standards built like you might put gas lamps on. But they built these standards, and in actuality, what they were, were um, they were crosses. They would take Christians, dip them in pitch, nail them or rope them to the cross, and then they would light them. And as you made your way into Rome in the nighttime, the street would be lit by the burning bodies of Christians. This was a horrific time of persecution. Paul has been swept up in the persecution. Uh, Peter's been swept up. So Paul is writing from prison. And he's writing to his young protege, Timothy. Um, It's time to transfer the baton of leadership. That always happens. We, we, are, we are on this earth for a certain amount of time, and then it's time for it to be handed off to the next guys coming up. Notice, if you would, in this letter, 
there are several key verses in 2 Timothy. In particular, chapter 2, verse 2, I think you get the heart of Paul and what he wants to say to his young protege, Timothy, that Timothy has got to get. He says this, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul was, uh, Paul was a faithful man. He, he was a man who had been used in a remarkable way by the Lord. He, 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 he was used in a significant way to, to write so much of the New Testament, to write Romans, that, that great bedrock Christian truth and doctrine. Do you know it used to be in law schools in the United States that law students would study the book of Romans in order to understand how to construct an argument. The logic in Romans is impeccable. And he lays out our faith. It, it, it is the Magna Carta, if you will, of, of the New Testament. So, so this, this man with this remarkable gift and this remarkable mind, he's getting ready to pass off the scene. So what does he say to Timothy? This faithful man. Here he is in prison. He's dying in prison. He's, he doesn't know if they're coming at 2 o'clock or if they're coming next week. He doesn't know. He just knows it's coming. You know, and isn't it interesting? Here he is, this great man in prison. Years ago, I heard someone tell this story. Imagine, if you would, getting in a time machine and going back to Rome during this time. And you get out of your time machine and you're there for a reason. You want to ask, you, you want to do some polling. And your question is to different citizens as they walk by is, excuse me, could I take a minute of your time and ask you a question? Uh, my question is, in 2,000 years, who are the Roman citizens who will be remembered? Who are the significant people? Who are the people that are making a difference? Who are the people that we'll be studying 2,000 years from now? And perhaps you'd get the answer, well, Nero, he's, he's the guy, you know. We've had some great ones, you know, we've had, you know, they might throw out Brutus, they might throw out Caesar, they might. Well, let me ask you something. Um, what about this man, Paul? Paul. Yeah. He, uh, he's, he's a Christian. Well, well, no, I don't think so. I actually think he's over there in the prison. You don't think uh, Peter? No, he... No, he isn't he another one? Yes. No, I, I, in 2,000 years, I don't think so. There hardly anybody knows him right now. Um, they're followers of this Christ who was crucified. Well, there were some women there that were associated with him, Mary and Martha. And in 2,000 years, I don't think so. No, will they be remembered? I don't think so. Now, isn't it interesting that 2,000 years later, we name our dogs Brutus, Caesar, Nero, and we name our children Paul, Peter, Mary, Martha. See, what the world says and what the world thinks 
really doesn't matter. Because God's got an entirely different way of doing things. So here's Paul in prison. He's not able to communicate. He's not able to really, you know, send out emails. He's not able. He's just there, and he's at the end. So what does he say to Timothy? He says, Timothy, look it. Here's what you have to do. This is critical. The things you have heard from me, because Timothy would go with him, hung out with him, learn from him. The things you've heard from me, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Timothy, the stuff you've heard from me, the truth that I taught you, you've got to find some faithful men and teach them. Timothy's probably in his 30s at this point. Because you see, one day, Timothy is going to pass off the scene. So Timothy has got to deposit truth into some younger guys. And then those younger guys have got to find some younger guys and younger guys. Because what happens is we get older, you pass off the scene, you better entrust the truth to the next generation. They're going to get older. How does the truth continue? Down through the generations, faithful men teach faithful men who teach faithful men. And it's been going on for 2,000 years. That's how God does it. That's how he does it. So that's the crux of the book. There's a, there's a sense of, uh, of, of sobriety here. There's a sense of uh, focus. You can't get off of this. This is your task. This is your work. This is your assignment. Uh, And so often in Christianity, we forget this. We've got so many different things that are going on, we forget the priority and the simplicity of men who are faithful men entrusting the truth to younger men so that they in turn can become mature, so that they in turn, it's the same principle that's in Deuteronomy chapter six with fathering. Flip over there with me. Same principle. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is sort of the great commission of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, he's speaking to the men of Israel. They're getting ready to go in and possess the land. Moses says, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, 6.1, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, he's talking to the men, that you might do them in the land where you were going over to possess. Watch this. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. I want to do verse 1 again. Because I want you to get verse 1. You know, this can be mumble jumble. You got to get this. This is the commandments, the statutes, the judgments. He's talking about the books that they had at that time. That Moses had had written. This is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. Same principle of Paul entrusting things to Timothy as Moses is entrusting things to the men of Israel. Which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess. So that, what's the purpose of all this? So that you and your son and your grandson 
might fear the Lord to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Same exact principle, Old Testament, New Testament, it never changes. This is what we as men are called to do. Are you a father? This is your job. It's your job with your sons. It's your job with your daughters. And you work in tandem with your wife. It's, it's crystal clear. And you say, well, my father didn't do that. Well, he may not have done it. It's probably because his father didn't do it because his father didn't do it. But the Lord has done a work in your life, and now you know your job. And by the way, if you're a father, it's clear. By the way, if you're a grandfather, that's also your job. So the principles are exactly the same. Let's go back to 2 Timothy. When you do these opening introductions of these books, if you've studied the Bible for a while, there begins to be a pattern. And Paul says in 2 Timothy, and he sticks to his pattern. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. If, if you've studied Paul and his epistles uh, for some time, something will stick out to you here. Normally, when Paul writes an epistle, it's common for him to say grace and peace to you. What's interesting here, in verse 2, when he's identifying the recipient of the letter, Timothy, he says to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace to you. Why is he throwing mercy? Well, you know what? Mercy is a really good thing. So last night, I'm driving home. I'm going through Highland Village on my way home, minding my own business. And suddenly, all these lights go off behind me. I look at my mirror and, hmm. So I speed up. (laughs) Yeah, you're. So I just pull over. Officer gets out. I said, good evening, sir. I'm officer. He said, is there some kind of emergency? I said, there isn't. It's just my mind's 100 miles away. And he said, well, I got you going 51 and a 40. I said, man, it could have been 71 and a 40 for all I know. And could I have your license, insurance? So gave it to him. He said, I'll just be a few minutes. I said, okay. So I'm sitting probably five minutes, six minutes. He comes back, gives me my license, gives me a piece of paper. He said, would you sign this? And at the top it said, warning. I'm not charismatic, but I broke into languages I don't normally speak. (laughs) It said warning. And I said, warning? He said, yeah. He said, I appreciate your being honest. I said, well, man, thank you. I signed it. I said, you know, that's what the Bible calls mercy. That's not justice. Because I deserve that ticket. But that was mercy. And I thank you for it. Mercy is really good stuff. He's the God of grace. 
What's grace? Hey, grace is unbelievable. Grace is that unmerited favor where you don't get what you deserve. And the thing about that grace, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It just never stops. It's like Niagara Falls. It just never stops. It just keeps coming. It just keeps roaring over those cliffs. The grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God. And see, when you get a grip on grace, you start to get a a grip on grace, it always leads to peace. Because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ took the penalty. Christ took the wrath. Christ took the, uh, the anger of God for our sin. He took it on him. And the more you understand grace the more peace you have in your life. But in the middle of this, Paul inserts mercy. What is mercy? You know, mercy is sort of the icing on the cake of grace. It's, It's just more undeserved tenderness and kindness of God. And I think Paul is acutely aware of this as he is facing death. You ever wonder how you're gonna handle death? I heard Franklin Graham say something the other day about his father that was, that was significant. He said, my father has always been ready to die. But he wasn't ready for old age. Boy, that's significant. How do you want to go out? I want to go out quick. Don't you? I'm sort of planning on it. I mean, you know, I don't know, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. But after going through this thing with my dad, who passed away a few weeks ago, and my, you know, my dad, as I said, my dad got wobbly. I think I may have, I don't think I said this a few weeks ago when my dad died, but you guys saw the movie Hoosiers. My dad lived that movie. My, My dad in 1941 I was a senior in high school at Scotts Bluff, Nebraska High School. Little tiny town in um, western Nebraska. And that little tiny town with a little tiny basketball team went undefeated. Went to the University of Nebraska, played in the big field house, packed out. They won every game. Undefeated. And when they came back to Scotts Bluff, there was a victory parade. Um, one of my dad's buddies and, and, oh, and those guys had a reunion every year and my dad there was my dad and one other guy and I called my dad's friend and told him my dad had passed away and there's just one guy left but a few years ago he sent my dad a, a present and the present that he sent my dad was a picture that someone had taken of the basketball team on the back of a flatbed truck in downtown Scotts Bluff, Nebraska when they won the state title. And my folks, my dad built a little apartment in the garage behind the house. And my mom put that picture up in that, right by the door of that little garage apartment. And I remember a couple years ago, I was staying out there and I got up to go into the house And there's that picture of my dad. He's 18 years old. He's standing. He's got a big, heavy 
overcoat. He's got the other teammates. Here's this little three block long downtown. And there's my dad like this on the back of that flatbed truck at 18 years old. Then I walk into the house and there he is in the kitchen. And on the flatbed truck, he's 6'3 and some change. But he wasn't 6'3 in the kitchen because he'd gotten older. It just was shocking. It's possible that you're ready to die, but are you ready to handle old age? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher at Westminster Chapel, said he thought it was very, very important how God's men died. Because it says something about us and it says something about our faith, the way that we face death. We don't think about it a lot, but it's something we're thinking about. Paul was faithful and he's transferring the baton. So here you have a faithful man and a man who knew the mercy of God. Now, I will tell you this. I have redone my stuff. Um, I walked in here. This, I was ready to walk in here with 10 observations out of this text. And I knew there was no way I was going to get past three. So I brought three. And let's jump into them and see how we do. Here's my first observation. Faithful men have faith because of the will of God. When we say that Paul was a faithful man, when Paul says to Timothy, hey, the things you've heard and seen in me, entrust these to faithful men. How do you get to be a faithful man? To be a faithful man, you've got to have faith. Well, how do you get faith? And if you're taking notes, I'll repeat that. Faithful men have faith because of the will of God. You see that phrase in there? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. I love this opening because it's the end of Paul's life. And, and, and providentially, he's got to be thinking back over his life. It's a great thing to look back over your life and see the faithfulness of God. Flip over to the book of Acts with me. Uh, Paul's an apostle. The last guy in the world you'd think would ever be an apostle. In Acts chapter 7, you've got the first martyr of the early church whose name is Stephen. And he's put on trial. He's up before the Jewish council. And he basically gives these guys an Old Testament lesson and he says, you guys build monuments to the prophets, yet your fathers killed the prophets. And he cut them to the quick. And they just snapped. And they took him out to stone him. And if you look at chapter 7, verse 59 of Acts, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep, a metaphor for dying. Next verse, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Saul became Paul. So here's the great apostle finishing his life, writing to Timothy. The last guy in the world you'd think would ever be an apostle. 
He's holding their coats. He's enthusiastic. And not only is he enthusiastic that they cut down Stephen, flip over, if you would, to verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, now, you know what, go back to 8. Go back to 8. Because I, I, I knew I was missing a verse. Verse 3 of 8. It says, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. He, uh, uh, Paul had such a great hatred for Christ and a great hatred, hatred for Christianity. Can you imagine someone busting into your house in the middle of the night, taking your husband, taking your father, you know, putting him in prison? I mean, this guy, this guy was a zealot. He hated Christ. He hated everything that Christ taught. How many families did he break up? And then you go over to nine. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I mean, this guy is a bounty hunter. You ever seen that bounty hunter dog? You ever seen that guy? Uh, uh, Paul was, was, I mean, he's going after him. I mean, he, this guy is zealous to, to wipe out this false teaching called Christianity. So he's going up to Damascus. Verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Well, what's, what's going on here? Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So now he's blind. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. So here's this guy that's going into Damascus, breathing fire, going to find these Christians, and let's, let's, let's lock these suckers up. And suddenly, they're leading him into, he's blind, can't even see. Verse 9, he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, keep reading. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. Now, you know why this street was called Straight? Because it was straight. This is what you call city planning. I just like that for some reason. No fancy name. It's, a, it's go down to the straight street. Okay. Get up. Hey, Ananias. Get up. Go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Uh, Ananias answered, um, um, uh, you know, Lord... Let me, let me, you know, Lord, let me fill you in on this guy a little bit. <laughs> Can you imagine Ananias' face when he heard this? He goes, say what? I, they knew all about Saul of Tarsus because notice what he said. Ananias answered, said, Lord, I have, uh, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. 
how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and how, and here he has authority from the chief priest, priest to bind all who call on your name. See, they knew he was coming. They knew all about the warrants. They knew the whole thing. They knew about this sucker, and for days, if not weeks, they had been trembling and shaking in their boots because it looked like there was no hope. And what does God do? God steps in. God loves to step in when there's no hope. That's what God does all the way through the Bible. Does he not? There's no hope. There's no way out. There's no escape. And what does he do? He makes a way where there is no way. And he's still doing that today. Fifteen. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed into the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing him bound before the chief priest? Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. That's funny. Because the hunter has become the hunted. Because something has happened to him. Paul's in that prison in Rome, and he's looking back over his life, and he's got a marvel that he's an apostle. He's got a, a, he's got a marvel that he's an apostle by the will of God. You know what's interesting to me in this whole scenario, Jesus appears to him, you know? Jesus appears to him and, and never says, uh, so Paul, you got any questions? He never says, so Paul, you okay with this? Uh, Paul, you want to raise your hand and come forward? But, there's none of that here. He says, hey, you're mine. Let's go. Oh, and by the way, you're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to suffer. And that's what Paul did. Not a lot of prosperity theology in this. Not a lot of private jet stuff in here. Is there? You know what you see? You see the will of God. Hey man, come here. You're coming, here's what you're doing. Isn't that great? Romans 9 says, it does not depend on the man who runs. Or on the man who wills, but on God who has mercy. You look back over your life and how it is that you came to Christ, you've got to marvel at how God worked in your life. You have to just marvel. You have to just shake your head. Every guy in here who knows Christ has a story. Everybody has a testimony. Everybody's got a bio that is fascinating. How God sovereignly worked in your life to bring you to know him. Flip over to Galatians, if you would, chapter 1. Paul fills us in a little bit more. Keep going to your right. You'll find Galatians right after Corinthians. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says, 
I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond uh, many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for the ancestral traditions. But when God who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. You know, you know Paul's education? Christ appeared to him. He called him. He was instantaneously regenerated by the Spirit of God. And then Paul goes off. He's not talking to the apostles or Peter. He's right out in the desert in Arabia. And he was instructed by Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing. The great hater of the church has become the great evangelist and apologist of the church. This is wild stuff. Why was Paul, a faithful man, saying to young Timothy, hey, the things you've heard and seen me and trust these faith? He was a faithful man because God had given him faith. It's amazing grace. It's not just grace, it's amazing that we know Christ. Let me give you a second observation, if I may. Faithful men... Do not fear death because of the promise of life. Let me say that again. Faithful men do not fear death because of the promise of life. If you go back to 2 Timothy, in that opening phrase, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He's an apostle. By the way, some of you guys are thinking, now wait a minute. Paul was an apostle. Do you know what was required to be an apostle? You had to to have been personally called by Christ. Personally called. And some of you guys are thinking, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. In the book of Acts, when Judas had betrayed Christ, that only left 11. By the way, there are no apostles today. Not in this sense. There are apostles, but they're the ones in this book. There aren't more apostles. They were hand chosen by the living Christ. They were called by Christ. Uh, To be an apostle is to be sent out. They were the sent out ones. Uh, Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but the apostles and prophets are the foundation. So these guys aren't being duplicated. So Judas is the betrayer. So now you got 11. You know, it says in Revelation that when the new Jerusalem comes down, there's going to be 12 gates and there's going to be 12 pearls, which are the 12 gates into the new Jerusalem. And above each of those gates is going to be written the name of the 12 apostles. Now, what's interesting is in the early chapters of uh, chapter one of Acts, Peter gets up and says, hey, you know what? We only got 11 apostles. So we need... We need to have a caucus in order to fulfill that position. 
And they did. And they picked a guy named Matthias. Now, you know what's interesting to me about that? I don't see anywhere where Peter was ever told to do that. Peter had a history of getting ahead of the Lord. Now, from then on, Matthias was not numbered among the 12. But my question is, when the New Jerusalem comes down, on that 12th gate, whose name's going to be on there? Well, I'd have to vote for Paul. Because Paul was hand-chosen personally by a revelation of the resurrected Christ. And Matthias wasn't. Not saying Matthias wasn't a godly man and used by God. You see the point, don't you? So Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Watch this. According to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Now get this, get this. You know what's interesting about these verses, especially some of the opening ones when you read the Bible, you just kind of go, okay, Paul and Apostle Jesus Christ, will God, according to the promise of life. This stuff is pregnant with truth. This guy's facing death. That tells you a lot about a man when he's facing death. Paul and Apostle Christ Jesus, by the will of God, watch this, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. He's facing death, but he has the promise of life. Flip over, if you would, to 1 John 5. This stuff makes all the difference in the world. 1 John 5, verse 12, says, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, Some of us have come to Christ in different ways from the guy sitting next to you. Some people, there is a moment you can identify where the Spirit of God was working in your life and he came into your life and regenerated you and you called out to the Lord. But there are other guys who sometimes struggle a little bit because they have more difficulty pinpointing the exact moment. I'm just curious. How many of you guys in here have had trouble over the years just pinpointing exactly when it was you came to Christ? Okay. That's okay. Because God works in different ways. How many of you guys can pinpoint the moment you came to Christ? I can. So see, those those of us who can pinpoint the moment, the guys who can't quite pinpoint it, it makes them nervous. Because it does, doesn't it? Kind of makes sense. Well, how do I know? I mean, you know, you believe in all this. Sure, I do. But I'm not, it wasn't a real, well, God works in different. C.H. Spurgeon said this. God's spirit calls men to Jesus in diverse ways. Some are drawn so gently that they scarcely know when the drawing began. And others are so suddenly affected that their conversion stands out with noonday clearness. Now watch this. The best evidence of true salvation is not having raised a hand or prayed a prayer or having been baptized or christened. Instead, the true test of an authentic work of God in one's life is sanctification. Now stay with me. As God continues the moral transformation, he began in regeneration. That's the mark. That's the sign. You talk to the folks at the Billy Graham Association, they will tell you that for all the people that come forward, they pretty much figure that about 10% are going to stick. I remember I did follow-up for a Billy Graham crusade. I was head of the follow-up committee. And, you know, we're out there following up people, talking to them. 
I remember talking to a guy, you know, and hey, I wanted to talk to you about the decision you made last week. Tell me about your new life in Christ. And the sucker basically denied it. But I had his card right in front of me. John says they went out from us because they were not of us. You know what the real mark is? The real mark, because you see, when we're born again, the spirit of God comes into us and implants eternal life into us. Uh, That's called justification. We're justified of our sins. Uh, That's Ephesians 2.8. When you're justified, for by grace you've been saved. For by grace you have been saved. It's past tense. It's something that's happened to you in the past. What's sanctification? Sanctification is being saved. It's present, it's present tense. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's 1 Corinthians 1.18. We are being saved in the present tense from the power of sin. Justification is being saved from the guilt of sin when Christ comes in and regenerates you. But see, it's, it's like when a baby is born. You just say, all right, the baby's born, great, forget it. No. What's the point of a baby being born? You want to see the baby grow and mature. And there's nothing more thrilling than seeing your child. You begin to watch them go through the stages and the phases of life. And, and they'll say something and you, you know, you'll have a little conversation. All of a sudden you realize, you know what? They're at a new phase. They're at a new level. That's the principle of life in them. Same thing happens spiritually. So we were born by grace. We're sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart. That moves us more towards holiness and righteous living. That's why we're struggling. That's why I'm not where I want to be. Yeah, but you're not where you used to be because you're growing in grace. And then one day we'll be glorified, which is Acts 15, 11. We'll be saved from the presence of sin. When we're glorified, when we die, there's no sin. That's going to be good. That's going to be great. So it's a process. I'll give you the third observation. It's a good thing I can come with 10 because I'm out of time. Third observation. Faithful men function as faithful fathers. In verse 2, Paul says this. He says to Timothy, my beloved son, my beloved son. If you look at Acts 16, this is where Paul first met Timothy. Simply says this. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Apparently his father was not a believer. You flip back to 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. That term sincere, it means not hypocritical. It's the real deal, Timothy. I'm aware, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you. Watch this. Which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. Uh, So Timothy also has kind of an interesting background. Godly mother, godly grandmother, but a father who was not a believer, apparently. We talked a few weeks ago in here about feminization. Uh, The best thing in, in terms of finding out how to be a spiritual leader, the best way is for you to have a father who's a godly man and a spiritual leader, and you watch him, and then you emulate what he does. 
But not a lot of guys have that. If you have it, you've been very blessed by God. Timothy didn't have that. And see, sometimes we start looking around saying, well, man, I didn't have that kind of deal. I, you know, I shared with you about my dad, and I'm sure some of you guys say, man, I wish I had had that. But you didn't have it. Well, does that mean God can't use you and you can't be a spiritual leader? Timothy didn't have it. And he's the guy that Paul is passing the baton off to. My point is this, guys. We're not disqualified by what we have or don't have in our family backgrounds. Because of who God is and how he wants to work in our life. He had a godly mother, godly grandmother, but he didn't have the male leadership. But what he saw was he got to know Paul. He hung out with Paul. He got to see him. And you see, Paul began his, became his father in the faith, became his mentor. This is how we learn. And this is where I started out, if I'm not mistaken. Every guy in here that knows Christ... In some way, shape, or form, you know what should be happening in your life? There ought to be a younger guy that you're influencing. Now, if you're a father with kids at home, those are your guys. That's your job. If you're Scott and you've got 27 kids, that's Scott's job. You see? Or you've got two kids, or... When, when I pastored, the first year I pastored, I'm in this little tiny church, 58 people. I'm 27 years old. I think they had 58 the first Sunday. I'm 27 years old. You see how desperate they were. So I preached that first Sunday. The next week I come back and they got 29 people. <laughs> There's a little church that was struggling. And you know what I thought? I thought, you know what? I got to get some men. I found four guys. And I started meeting with them. Spending time with them, showing them how to study the scripture, teaching them basic theology, basic apologetics. And I wasn't far ahead of them, let me tell you, because I was young and I was a rookie. And the next year I found six guys. And the next year, I don't know, one year I had 11. I did that for 15 years straight while I pastored. And then when I got into the conference stuff, it was really interesting because what I really did, um, I, I didn't have guys like that. Because I realized I needed to be doing that with my boys. So I did. They were, they were the priority. This is the most significant work in the world. God's done work in your heart. God's done work in your life. You ought to be passing the baton. The things that they have seen and heard in you they should then in turn be entrusting the faithful men so that you're, when you're gone, the work still goes on. Don't you love Howard Hendricks? The guy's all time. He's just all time. My son John, when John was struggling away from the Lord and just had no interest in the things of God, somehow John winds up going to Biola University, which is kind of ironic Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And he wasn't even sure that the Lord existed. John just had to work it out for himself. He was going through a tough time, and God's done a great work in his life. This is, this is years ago. And I remember John took courses. He called me up, and he said, Dad, I signed up for courses. See, the other thing at Biola, if you go to Biola, you, mi you minor in Bible. You have to. I remember John called me up. He said, Dad, I signed up for classes, but I'm not taking any Bible courses. And I said, well, that's fine. 
But eventually he was going to have to take Bible courses. But here's the thing. You got to go to chapel. And John was there maybe, I don't know, four, five, six months. One day he called me. He goes, hey, Dad. And I go, yeah. He goes, you know Howard Hendricks, don't you? And I said, yeah. He says, he's out here. He's out here teaching. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, he, Dad, he's doing chapel. I said, really? He goes, yeah, hey, Dad, he's unbelievable. I said, he is, isn't he? He said, Dad, he's the best, he's the best I've ever heard. And he, go, he, go, he said, he's as old as Papa. <laughs> and I said, yeah, he is. He's how old is he, Dad? He goes, I, you know, probably, I don't know, late 70s, 80? I don't know, John, somewhere in there. He goes, Dad, he's unbelievable. He kind of gets up there and he just explodes. And, and he just, he's got so much energy when he talks. You've got to listen to him. And, Dad, you know what he said today? I said, no, tell me what he said. And John gives me his whole I thought, this is wild. Here's a kid that's been raised in church, is struggling, has no end. And here God brings in Howie Hendricks to talk to the heart. And he said, Dad, all my friends are listening. Usually we're screwing around and doing stuff we shouldn't be doing, but we're all listening. You got to listen to him. You can't, you can't not listen to him. And I said, well, that's wild. John, next day, because he's in chapel five days. Dr. Hendricks changed John's life. I had the privilege of telling him that a few years ago. But you know what's interesting to me? In Dr. Hendrick's book, Iron Sharpens Iron, he tells the story of him back in the, how old is Dr. Hendricks now, 80-something? He's a boy back in the 1920s, 30s, 24, probably in the 30s. Uh, his mom and dad were divorced when he, was, when he was just an infant. And that was rare back then. And he tells this story of really not having any spiritual direction, of kind of being a hellraiser, of being a troublemaker in school, of just, I mean, this, he was going nowhere fast, hanging out with wrong guys, wrong friends, all this. And he tells the story in here of a guy named Walt. And Hendricks and the guys on his, his buddies on the street, they loved to play marbles. They just loved it. They're playing marbles one day, and this guy walks up, kind of a gangly, goofy guy. And he says, hey, any of you guys want to go to Sunday school? Sunday school? No, we don't want to go to Sunday school. He said, well, that's fine. He said, what are you doing there? Oh, we're playing marbles. He says, yeah, you mind if I try? And, and Howie Hendricks says, I was the best marble player in our neighborhood. And this guy got down and took me to the cleaners. I mean, he humiliated me. And I was the best there was at marbles. And suddenly, I respected this guy. And he started showing me how to do things with marbles I didn't know how to do. And then one day, this guy said to me a little bit later, because I really liked it. He was teaching me all kinds of things about marble. And then a little bit later, he said to me, hey, you, you want to go to Sunday school? I teach a class. And I said, yeah, I'll go. Because I thought he was a pretty neat guy. Oh, and my buddies, he invited them, and then they wanted to go. And then... He says, uh, not only for me, but for 13 other boys in my neighborhood, nine of whom also came from broken homes. Walt had an impact. He says, uh, Walt wasn't the greatest teacher there was. It wasn't real exciting. He said, but I can't remember him ever showing up and not being prepared. He was always prepared. He was a tool and die guy. Just a real basic guy. And he'd take us for hikes out in the countryside. And we just thought that was great. Even though Walt had a bad heart, he'd just get out there and walk with us. And then here's what he says. 
He says, not only for me, but for 13 other boys in my neighborhood, nine of us came from broken homes. Remarkably, 11 of us went on to pursue careers as vocational Christian workers, which is ironic given that Walt himself completed school only through the sixth grade. It just goes to show that a man doesn't need a PhD for God to use him to shape another man. How many men has Howard Hendricks reached? <laughs> you can't count them. And where did it begin? With just an average guy with kind of average gifts who loved on a guy that had no spiritual background and no spiritual training and no spiritual father and he adopted him and he showed him the truth and what's happened. Walt's been in heaven for years. Dr. Hendricks is in his 80s. But in both of those situations, the things you learned and saw in me, you entrust to faithful men who will in turn, that's the plan for you and for me. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your greatness. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you desire to use us we're living in crazy times but your plan hasn't changed you're still working you're still raising up leaders for the next generation and the generation after that if Christ doesn't return make us mindful Lord that you have a work for us to do it might be someone we already, already have a relationship or maybe we haven't thought about this and maybe there's a guy at work or a young guy or I, I don't know who it might be. But Lord, just make us aware and put our antenna up so that we might be used by you in the way that Paul was used. We can make a difference. Perhaps more so than we could ever believe. You've been so faithful to us. We are in awe. And we praise your name in Jesus' name.